So we are beginning this morning a study through 1 Corinthians, and I have to tell you, I'm actually pretty excited uh, to be going through this book. Uh, it's an amazing book for many reasons. It's very profound theologically, but it's also very practical. Uh, it's convicting, but it's also loaded with hope, and it's loaded with grace. Um, it touches on a wide variety of topics uh, that are very, I think, crucial for us to understand as believers, how we are to live our lives before the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe something that, that you've noticed, or maybe you haven't, I don't know, over the over the years is as I preach, one of the books that I often cross-reference is 1 Corinthians. I think it's probably my most common cross-referenced book out of all of the other books in the Bible. And I do that because it's like the Swiss Army knife of Bible books. Like, it just, it has something for everything. So you want to talk about election and predestination, you know where you can go? 1 Corinthians. You want to talk about factions and divisions in the church? How to deal with that? You know where you go? 1 Corinthians. What about final judgment? What's final judgment going to look like? How's that going to be different for believers than it is for unbelievers? 1 Corinthians. It's, it's in there. What if someone is in open, unrepentant sin and everybody in the church knows about it and we're like, we don't know what to do? You know where you go? 1 Corinthians. It's in here. What if there's a guy over here who owes you a lot of money? And you think he owes you a lot of money, but he doesn't think he owes you a lot of money. How do you deal with that? How do you approach that situation? 1 Corinthians talks about that. Do you take him to court? Do you sue him? What do you do? 1 Corinthians talks about it. What about people who think they can go and sleep with prostitutes or whoever they want because, hey, they got Christian liberty? First Corinthians. What about the husband who refuses to have intimacy with his wife or the wife who refuses to have intimacy with her husband? First Corinthians. It's all in here. What about a builder who buys all of his lumber from an outlet that openly advertises for LGBTQ agenda stuff? First Corinthians does not deal with that. <laughs> But it does deal with what happens if you have your meat vendor who is a pagan and sacrifices his cow to the pagan god and then sells you some of the meat. What do you do then? Same kind of issue. Because your money is going to fund, it seems, pagan idolatry. Do you go buy somewhere else? What do you do? What about paying pastors and missionaries? What about wearing uh, hats when you pray or head coverings? What about speaking in tongues? What about prophecy? What about all of that? It's in 1 Corinthians. And as we just saw in the, in the, the Lord's Supper, what about evangelism? What, what do you actually need to tell someone that, that they need to understand and believe and embrace and hold on to in order for them to be saved? We see that in 1 Corinthians. All of that's there. Um, and, and there's a good reason for that. A lot of times after I'm done preaching through a book, um, I'll do like a Q&A, a couple of Q&A sermons um, to kind of cover some questions. Well, actually, to some extent, 1 Corinthians turns into a Q&A kind of book. This is, this is technically the second letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. The first letter he wrote, and then they had some questions, and they sent those questions to Paul. And some of this letter is actually a response to those questions uh, that they had given to Paul. Um, and, and some of these questions are great because these are questions that followers of Jesus have been wrestling with for 2,000 years. We still wrestle with some of the questions that we will deal with in 1 Corinthians. In fact, we, we wrestle with most of them. And I think 
to be honest, one of the things that encourages me so much about 1 Corinthians is, is that the Corinthian church is just messed up. It's just a messed up church. And I read it, I'm like, well, at least we're not that bad. I mean, we got, we got our issues, but at least they're not that bad. And we can, we can take some encouragement that, that even though this is, this is a crazy church, this is a zoo of a church, Paul didn't give up on them. And Jesus didn't give up on them. And they continued to work side by side for the advancement of the gospel. Did you know it was Paul, while he was in Corinth, that wrote the magnum opus of Romans? Part of the reason we even have the book of Romans is because the crazy church of Corinth. They were housing Paul, and he was working there when he wrote that letter. I've heard, I I don't know if you've ever heard this, but people will say, well, you know what? The problem with today's church is we just need to get back to a New Testament church. We're not a New Testament church anymore. We need to get back to a New Testament church. And I said, well, like, what kind of New Testament church? Like the churches in Galatia who said salvation was by grace plus circumcision? Like that kind of New Testament church? Or is it the New Testament church in Corinth where where people are denying the resurrection? Is it that kind of New Testament church? What do we mean when we say we need to get back to a New Testament church? Is it the one that the Apostle John's writing to where they're kicking out the good teachers and they are embracing the false teachers? Like that kind of New Testament church? No, the church is always battled with issues, whether it's practical or theological or how to, to just love one another. This is This is the... This is the legacy of the church. But because we're filled with the Spirit, we are bound together. And we strive together for the mutual upbuilding of one another. And we see that so clearly in 1 Corinthians as they got all kinds of issues, all kinds of, of things that they are wrestling with. And so we fight for unity and we fight for humility because we all submit to the risen Christ who has saved us. This church does seem like it has more issues than average And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give you some background to the church to help you understand a little bit why maybe they're wrestling with a lot of, uh, a lot of these issues. Some of, some of the issues that they wrestle with just come from their history. Some of it comes just from their geography. So I hope maybe a little bit of, um, a little bit of this background will be helpful for you. So, so as you, just, just quick show of hands. In the last, I don't know, six months, who's, who's read through 1 Corinthians? Okay, so a few people. Yeah, so if it's been a little while, some of this background, I hope, is helpful. So one reason that Corinth was so crazy is it was literally the crossroads to everything. So I think I've got a slide here. Seth, can you, or Zach, can you give me the first slide? Okay, so that's where we're at in the world. That's that's like northern Africa and Europe. The arrow on the right is Jerusalem. The arrow on the left is Corinth. It's, it's in modern-day Greece is really where it's at. So it's about 800 miles or so as the crow flies from Jerusalem. So that's kind of where we're at in the world. And then go on to the next, go on to the next slide. So, so this is zoomed in on, on that Grecian peninsula. So the green arrow is Athens. So it's only like, like, I think like 30 miles away from, from Corinth. The, the red arrow is, is Corinth. It's at that real narrow spot. It's, it's a, it's an isthmus is what it's called. But, but it's at a crossroads for two reasons. Number one, if you remember on the, on the previous map, it was like literally in the center of the Roman Empire, wasn't it? It was literally in the center. And, and it's a crossroads because if you want to go from, from the mainland in the north down to the tip, 
down in, in Greece. You have to go through Corinth. The other thing that's interesting is that the safest passage from the east side of the Mediterranean to the west side is actually through Corinth. Um, go to go to the next slide there, Zach. So that little narrow spot is actually where the city is. It's it's four miles wide. Now, today, there is a canal that, that connects the two, but there used to not be a canal. And what they would do is they would actually, um, sailors would dock their ships either on the west side or on the east side, and they would pay people to pull them up in over four miles to get to the other side. Four miles is from here to 395. That's how far they would drag boats one way or another. So this, so I mean, what's a sailor to do when he's waiting for weeks for his boat to be dragged four miles across land? Well, there's all kinds of debauchery going on in Corinth. So, so that's where it's going. Go to the next slide, Zach. That's a picture of the modern day canal. This canal was initially planned in 600 BC. It was not completed until 1870. It is so steep and it is so rocky and it is so difficult. Um, that they, that they were only able, even, even 150 years ago, to make it about 70 feet wide. Only one ship can go through at a time. That's it. And you can see how steep those sides are. They would have had to lift the boats off, go all the way up. It's called the agro Corinth, where they would go up and over. This was not easy. But if you compare it to the next slide, the other alternative was actually to go around south, which was just littered with rocks that were just below the ocean, hard winds. Um, ships went there, went around to die is really what they went to do. So, so Corinth became sort of the nexus of the world. Everybody went there. And just like any modern day city where there's people coming and going, you think of like Amsterdam, you think of New York City or Los Angeles, when you get that kind of multicultural stuff, you get all kinds of paganism, you get all kinds of, uh, immorality, that sort of thing. Um, but it, but it really was. It was culturally, it was just a big crossroads where everybody Everybody met. Um, that's all the pictures I got for you. Um, so, so it's a crossroads. Anytime you have a crossroads in culture, there's, there's likelihood for immorality. And that's the second thing is that Corinth was actually famous for its immorality. Um, sailors added to this, travelers added to this. Um, there were all kinds of pagan religions that existed at the time in and around Corinth. And usually worship at a pagan temple included what were called cult prostitutes. That's just, that, that's how you worshiped these false gods, was you went and you, you visited prostitutes. In fact, um, it, it really is hard to overstate just how disgusting Corinth was. To Corinthianize, that was a word that they would use, meant to indulge in sexual immorality. That was, that was, it, it'd be like to Vegasize here or something like that. Like they made up a word that was a synonym for immorality and they made, and the word was, was Corinth. It was based on that word. That's how bad this was. The sailors, the pagan religions all added to this immorality. Uh, there were also Olympic games that were held in Corinth. As you saw on, on one of those pictures, Athens was not too far behind. That's usually what we think of when we think of Olympic games. But Corinth was second in place, uh, in terms of prestige for Olympic games. And like many sports today, the body was glorified. And people did sports nakedly. And there was just all this debauchery that went on around the games as well. 
And I just want to open up a little bit of a can of worms here, because um, why not? Um, I want to encourage us that there that there really are all kinds of sports that Christians should not participate in or even be watching because of immorality, because of what they're wearing or what it requires, that sort of thing. I'll let you guys kind of work out on your own conscience what you think those are, but there are sports that we should not participate in. Um, I'll just give you one example from my own history. I used to watch UFC fighting uh, many years ago until I realized I really don't think it gives glory to God to ground and pound somebody. I, I just don't know that that is a way that I am expressing Christian love. Like, I wouldn't do that to Jesus. I don't think Jesus would do that to me. I don't know that I could sit there and watch the ground and pound with Jesus beside me. Well, they're both, they're, they're both consenting to it. I don't, I don't know that that's a good thing. Two people consent to a lot of sinful stuff. Just because there's consent doesn't mean that it's good. And you go, well, how is that different than wrestling or football? Well, number one, I like wrestling and football. That's how. <laughs> That's how it's different. Number two, I think there are some finer distinctions we could make if we were to do sort of a theology of sports. But listen, if your reaction to, to any of my broad statements is, well, what about this and what about this? That's really a bad reason to participate in them. If it's just a well about, well, what about? Like, we need to be very careful. Is what we're doing, what we're watching, is it bringing active glory to God or is it detracting from it? We just need to be very careful. We see that in Corinth, um, the sports, the games, added to the immorality. They added to the debauchery that was going on around there. So it was crazy because it was at a crossroads. It was crazy because it was known for its immorality. It was also crazy because even within the church, there was a wide variety of people that were attending the church at Corinth. In fact, um, I, I wanna, I'm going to read these first three verses, and then we're going to turn back to Acts chapter 18. So take a look, 1 Corinthians 1. Since we're there, let's just read these first three verses, and then I want to go back to Acts chapter 18. So we see Paul, who is called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is now writing a letter. He'll write two letters. Actually, he'll write four. We've got this is, this, like I said before, this is the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. There will be a, a third that we don't have that was called the severe letter. And then what we have in our Bibles as 2 Corinthians is, is technically the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. We're not missing any books of the Bible, by the way. All the books of the Bible we have, those other books are not canonical. So we don't need to worry about them. But by the time Paul is writing, some 20, 30 years after Jesus died and rose again, We've got an established church. Where where did that come from? Well, we have that answered in Acts chapter 18. So turn back there for just a minute. This is in the middle of what we call Paul's second missionary journey. So in Acts, there are there are missionary journeys that Paul takes, um, and they seem to get bigger and bigger as, as time goes on. And in Acts chapter 18, we have what happens when Paul comes to the city of Corinth. So take a look at verses 1 through 4 of Acts 18. 
It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Again, that's just like 20, 30 miles away. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of, of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. Paul went to see Priscilla and Aquila. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. So if you remember, Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That was primarily where God had sent him to go preach the gospel. His his goal was to show that the Messiah came to die for, for all people. What he would often do is he would start in the synagogue, though. Paul was, in fact, a rabbi. He was technically a Pharisee, even after he came to faith in Jesus. He was a Pharisee. And traveling rabbis had sort of a, an open mic kind of deal. They, they could walk into a synagogue. They would be recognized as a rabbi, and they could just walk in, and they could talk. And so that's what Paul would often do. He would walk in. He would receive, receive the floor, and he would start unpacking scripture about how Jesus was the Messiah, and they'd be like, are you kidding me? Like, we've never even heard of Jesus. And how does Messiah die? And how does Messiah rise again? Anyway, there'd be this tussle, and Paul would preach in the synagogue as long as they would allow him, usually until he got kicked out. Sometimes it'd be months, sometimes it'd be a day, sometimes it was a few weeks. But that was sort of his MO. So, so he's here, and he meets up with Priscilla and Aquila, who are also tent makers. They're, they're leather workers, and he is one as well. And so they, uh, they, they meet up. The emperor had banned all Jews from, from Rome, and so they were, they were running. So take a look at verse 5. It says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is one of my favorite accounts in the book of Acts. The Jews from the synagogue are so upset with him, they kick him out and he's like, all right, I'm out. And then he goes next door and he plants the church. It'd be like getting kicked out and going across to the community center like, all right, we're having church over here, guys. Like, that's what he does. This is the audacity of Paul. And you're like, well, maybe that's not very nice. That's not very kind. Jesus tells him to go do it, to keep teaching, to keep preaching, to go on and to testify about him. He actually promises Paul protection. But watch what happens. The Jews hate Paul so much that they actually try to get the government to turn on him. To get the government to shut him down. See, in Roman times, there were, there were, um, legal religions and there were illegal religions. 
Judaism was technically a legal religion, and Christianity sort of like flew in on the coattails of Judaism because they used the same book. But as time went on, people started noticing some distinctions, and the Jews really wanted some distinctions because what they wanted was they wanted the government to persecute these people who followed Jesus. That's what they wanted. So watch what happens. They try and incite the government officials. Verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, which is kind of like a judge. Verse 13 saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge on these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Isn't that amazing? They're, they're trying to outlaw Christianity, and it totally comes back on them. Galileo's like, I, you guys are just having some religious argument. Like, I'm not in all that. Like, just go figure it out. And they're so upset, they take the new synagogue leader, Sosthenes, and they beat the tar out of him in front of Galileo. And he's like, yeah, whatever. Like, they'll figure it out. It totally turns back on them. Welcome to church planting in Corinth. It's like planting a church in Sodom or Gomorrah or Las Vegas, but sort of with a Jewish twist in there. Hopefully this gives you a little bit of a taste of why church planting in Corinth and Corinth in general was just a zoo. It was just crazy. All of the stuff that's, that's going on. And I, you know, I, I think probably had, had we been in Corinth or thinking about planting a church in Corinth or something, we probably would have written it off. Like, this is totally not worthwhile. Like, this place is disgusting. Like, I just rain down the fire and the brimstone and just level it to the ground. But Jesus has a plan here, doesn't he? Jesus is not finished with this town. In fact, what's interesting, did you notice what truth Jesus encourages Paul with in verse 10? He says, for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you. Why? For I have many people who... Many in this city who are my people. He encourages them with predestination. I got people in this city that are mine. You just need to keep preaching and they'll come to me. I'll guard you. Physical harm will not come to you. They're not saved yet, but they're mine. That's exactly the language that he uses. And so Paul is to give every ounce of effort he has to preach the gospel. He doesn't know who those people are. Just like we don't know who these people are. But he's to go preach. Despite the violence and the attacks that he's seen so far, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to protect you. And listen, I, I think this is very important for us. No matter where we're called to in life, maybe one day you're called to Las Vegas or New York or some debauched place, but right now you're called to Deer Park. And you're here until the Lord takes you away. And you need to plant yourself here. And you need to be faithful to preach the gospel. We don't have to worry about this stuff, at least not now. We need to be faithful to go preach the gospel where we're at. There are people who, who need Jesus. And I know, like, as, as political climate changes, like, Idaho starts sounding really good and Montana starts sounding really good. Can I tell you something? They're, like, three years away from us. 
There ain't no salvation in Idaho. There's no salvation in Montana. What's happening here will happen there. It's just a matter of time. And I thought, and this is coming from a person who actually drives to Idaho two or three times a week to study so I can have a little bit of freedom. Right? But God has planted us here. And we need to be faithful here to preach the gospel, to show the love of Christ and the glory of the gospel to everyone around us. That's where he's placed us. If he placed Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and Silas and all those guys in Corinth, Corinth, and there was fruit, there will be fruit here too. God has people in this city who just need to hear the gospel. And we need to be faithful to show that gospel to them. All of that is in the middle of this riot. Now turn over to to 1 Corinthians again, because I want to show you something. After that scene, you might be like, well, I don't know. Those Jews are pretty hardcore. Like, is the gospel really going to change anybody? Is the gospel really going to do anything? I mean, those guys are pretty committed. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus in our brother who? Sosthenes. He was the synagogue leader who just got beat up. What happened to him? He got saved. He got radically saved. And not only that, but he's now with Paul on missionary journeys. Listen, if there's somebody in your life who you think, nah, they ain't coming to faith. God saved two synagogue leaders in Corinth. There's no one beyond the grace of God, y'all. There's no one. He can work. He will work if we're faithful to preach the gospel. This is what they're all about. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And no matter what we see going on on the outside, we have no idea what's going on in their heart on the inside. We don't know what the Spirit's doing in them. We don't know how he's convicting, how he's leading them to Christ. We don't have to know. All we have to do is be faithful. That's all we got to do. But here's the guy who just got beat up, and now he's the guy who is writing to this church plant with the Apostle Paul. And he's our brother. He's our brother. So Paul stays in Corinth for a year and a half. He builds the church And the witness of the gospel is such that two synagogue leaders, amongst others, come to faith in Jesus. And now he's off probably in Ephesus with Paul preaching the gospel there. So we can take hope. And this is really the testimony of Paul himself, isn't it? Nobody ever planned for Paul to be saved. He was that guy who was out persecuting believers. Remember he had a letter to go and drag people off into jail who were part of the way. That's what they call Christians because Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He was going to go throw those people in jail, and Jesus met him on the road, on the road to Damascus. So this is just kind of getting to the the structure of the letter. This is a very common uh, structured letter. What we have is a typical opening for Roman correspondence at the time. So we've got the the name of the person writing. We've got their qualifications of who they are to be writing. Uh, we've got who they are writing to and maybe a little bit about them and then some sort of a, a blessing. That is very common in Roman times. Usually our letters, we write who we're writing to at the top and then we've got the body of the letter and then our name is actually at the end. 
Um, but this is very common structure for for Paul. And this isn't just like Bible writing. This was like all kinds of Roman writing. We have we have ancient letters from Rome, uh, from governmental authorities to other governmental authorities, and they follow this exact same pattern. So this is this is just just how you wrote a letter um, back in in Roman times. And so this letter is is by the Apostle Paul. Uh, an apostle is somebody who is specifically called by Jesus to go and proclaim the gospel. So there's there's kind of two things. Sometimes you'll see a more generic term in the New Testament for apostle, and that's just somebody who's sent. That's all the word means, just somebody who is sent. Or you'll see a person who holds down that office of apostle. And that's what he's saying here. He was called by Jesus to be an apostle, to go and and preach. Um, there are, I believe, 16 apostles named in the New Testament. We've got the original 12. You've got Matthias in Acts chapter 1. You've got Paul. You've got Barnabas. And you've got James, the half-brother of Jesus, all called apostles. There may have been more, but probably not many more. Um, most uh, most people believe that there there were maybe, maybe just several more, um, but we don't have their names. But this is who Paul is, verse 1. He is an apostle called by the will of God. It was God who made Paul an apostle. He set him up in that thing, and that was something that was always in Paul's purview. Paul was not an apostle because he was so smart, so brilliant. He wasn't the rising star, although he was. The reason he was an apostle was because God made him an apostle. And he took that as stewardship. This was not something that he invented on his own. This was something that he was entrusted with by God. And he was very uh, reluctant to have that authority, but he wielded it with faithfulness. Notice who he's writing to. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Sometimes in the opening of letters, we kind of like blow right through them because they're just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's like get to the stuff. But these these little openings are packed. They are just absolutely packed. In fact, I I, I see there there are four truths that we see in this one simple sentence. First of all, he is writing to the church. The church of God in Corinth. And what does he mean when he says church? When we, when we think of church, usually we think of a building, don't we? Or we think of the event that happens on Sunday morning. I'm going to church. Or I'm going to the church. I'm going to stop by the church on the way home, whatever. But for Paul, the church is not a thing that happens on Sunday morning and church is not a building. The church is the called out people of God. The church is the people. The building is just a rain shelter. That's all that is. It's a nice rain shelter, and we appreciate the rain shelter. But it's a rain shelter. The church is the people, ecclesia. That's the Greek word. And what it means is called out. We are the called out people of God. In fact, this would have reminded it, at least the Jews in their congregation of Israel in the Old Testament because over 70 times in the Greek version of the Old Testament, Israel is called the ecclesia. They're the called out people of God. God called them out of Egypt. And they are his special people. And in the New Testament, those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ are those who are the church. They are the called out people of God. God has made a covenant with us. 
the new covenant in Christ's blood. And that's why this is the church of God, because this is God's doing. If you are in the church, if you are part of the called out people of God, it's because God called you. He brought you into this marvelous group of people who have had faith in Jesus and have been cleansed by his blood. You can rightly say, I am the church. Along with my brothers and sisters, we make up the called out people of God. So he says he's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth. By the way, this is likely a, a host of house churches within Corinth. So when he thinks church, he doesn't mean just one group. He means all of the people in this area. In Romans, he calls them to the church in Rome. Well, we know there were at least three, maybe up to five churches in Corinth. So something you need to realize, even as we pray for the churches in our area, we're like the church of Spokane County. Not just our congregation, but all of the congregations together make up the church in this area. In the early church, how people thought of a group was a geographical area, not by denomination, not by particular belief set or whatever. It was by location. Were you part of the church in this area? Because that area was probably dealing with the similar things. And we see that here in Scripture. The second thing he says is to those who are sanctified. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. And then he qualifies even that and he says to those who... Um, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And there's a little bit of an overlap there. And what he's doing is he's using a bunch of synonyms for Christians. That's what he's doing. He's, he's defining who we are in Christ in different ways. Here he says we are sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Well, something that is sanctified is something that is set apart for a specific use. That's what it is. It's holy. It's grandma's fine china that she only gets out, you know, like at Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's sanctified. You don't just, it's not just common. It's been set apart by grandma for a specific use, for a specific purpose. It's precious. It's special because she bought it. We are sanctified by Jesus. We are set apart for a special use. Why? Because God bought us. We are sanctified. How are we sanctified? Well, we're sanctified in Christ. We're not holy in and of ourselves. We're holy because we have been made holy by proclamation of God. We've been justified through faith in Jesus. I, I don't know about you. I, I am not internally sanctified. Not at all. Like, I know my own heart. I know my own words. But through faith in Jesus, I've been declared sanctified. Through faith in Jesus, you have been declared sanctified. You are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Or we could say because of Christ Jesus. You have been sanctified. So not only are we the gathered people of God and the people who are made holy and righteous by Jesus, we also see we're called to be saints. So to the church, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then the third description is called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how is this different than being sanctified? Well, in truth, there's some overlap. One of these is, is more just our place, our, our declared position in Christ. Another is how do we live this out? We are to live out that holiness. We are to live out that righteousness that we are. So the idea is, in the Bible, 
usually when, when the Bible calls us to do something, it does so by reminding us first who we are. So who we are in Christ determines how we live. Very rarely does the Bible ever just say, do this thing, because. There are times when the Bible does that. Proverbs, you'll see that quite a bit. But especially in the New Testament, the reason we live this way is because we belong to Jesus, because we've been adopted, because we've been sanctified. It's the outflow of our life that is now in Christ. And so we have two examples. So if you've signed with the Seahawks, what do you act like? You act like a Seahawk. You go to their team meetings. You do what the Seahawks do, for better or for worse. Right? Same thing is probably true in your house. For my house. The reason we act certain ways is because you are an upchurch. This is just how you act. This is who you are, and this is what we what we demand of you. Is part of our household. This is the same thing is true in the Bible. You've been called to be saint, or you are you've been called to be sanctified in Jesus Christ, and now you go out and you live holy lives. You live a certain way because you have been placed in Christ. It's an expression of who you are. And so we are called to live out sanctified lives, lives of holiness. The fourth thing is that we are called to be united as the worldwide church. Knowing that our, notice in, in this section that our calling here, being the church, being sanctified, being saints, is not in isolation. Christianity is a team sport. It's, it's, it's understanding that not only is it the people in our church, but it's the people in, who, in every church who are truly saved. And this is what he says in, at the end of verse 2. He says, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. We don't live our Christianity out in isolation. Not at all. To follow Jesus, this is this is so cool. To follow, to follow Jesus, to be a part of a family that is a worldwide family. We we do not have some corner of, of uh, on the gospel. The gospel is spread all the way around the world to get to us. There's churches, there's true believers everywhere, and the church also encompasses all people of all ages who have had faith in God. So it's all of us. Your faith in Jesus, though it needs to be yours, and it needs to be personal, and you need to personally trust in Christ, it's it's the same as all of those around because it is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. So your saving faith is the same as the Pacific Islander guys' saving faith. The same as the African gals' saving faith. The same as the, the Asian family's saving faith. We have family all over the world. When we were saved, we were brought into not only a big family, but also into an amazing history that begins in creation. And so everyone all over the world, through all of history, who has ever called on the Lord Jesus, is now part of our family, or we're part of theirs. It's this worldwide scheme of Jesus bringing every tribe and tongue and language and nation together to him to worship him for his grace. That's what we've been brought into. That's who's Paul, that's who Paul is writing to, and we could very much say the same thing. We are the church of God that is in Deer Park. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon our Lord Jesus Christ, both our Lord and theirs. That's who we are. We're part of this too. Every church is, every true church. 
And then here's the amazing blessing, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul pours out a personal blessing of grace and peace. Grace has an emphasis in the New Testament. Peace, shalom, was the, the greeting in the Old Testament. That's how you greeted people, shalom, peace. Jerusalem is Jerusalem. It's the city of shalom, the city of peace. We have grace and peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, like Corinth, have been abundantly blessed, both personally blessed, but blessed as a corporate body who's part of the larger corporate body of believers around the world. I don't know about you, but I'm excited to study this book. I'm excited to be encouraged by the grace that we see just even in the opening verses. And I think that we will be very blessed with grace and peace as we study and dig into this verse or this this book. Let's pray. God, thank you for your truths. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus that we see so clearly, not only in 1 Corinthians itself, but we also see the effect of the gospel. And Lord, may we treasure that gospel message all the more as well. We are called to be saints. We are called to live our lives, not in isolation, but in unity with all of those around the world who praise you for your goodness and your grace. Amen.